Good morning, Faith Family at the Landing. I am so eager to dive into this passage. I need God's help, and I'm going to ask for it in prayer. Would you turn with me one more time? Precious Lord, speak powerfully through Revelation 15. Speak to the person who lacks peace in this room or in the hearing of my voice today. Speak to the person who has yet to know and taste and enjoy the sweet peace of living their whole life, mind, body, soul, and strength, for you and your Son, Jesus Christ. Draw us to worship you with all that we are, to offer to you our bodies, our speech, our emotions, our past, our present and future, our wills, our values, everything we think about. Draw us to offer it all to you as a living sacrifice. You promise in Isaiah 26.3, you keep in perfect peace the person whose mind is stayed upon you. Reorient our minds upon you and give us powerful, reigning peace in our lives today because of this passage. Do that, Lord, I ask. Do that because it's your aim. It's your promise. There's nothing more powerful in the world than the power of your word as you have wielded it. So use it as a mighty tool of peacemaking between us and you, one another, and the believers gathered and the world around us. Make peace where there is conflict, where there's war, where there's anxiety, where there's guilt or shame, where there's confusion, where there's difficulties of every sort and kind. Let the peace of Christ reign. I ask this miracle, Lord, because it's not something that I can achieve or any person can achieve, nor any group or any gathering, no technology, no skill, no philosophy, no politics can achieve this, only you. So we turn to you. And we offer ourselves to you to work in us what you alone can accomplish. I ask it in Jesus' peace-giving name. Amen. Can you imagine a day when all your thoughts, all your emotions, everything in your mind, everything in your body, everything out of your mouth, everything about you will love everything God loves. Where your mind and his mind will be overlaid on each other and they'll be the same because you'll just love everything he loves. You'll hate everything he hates. You'll celebrate everything he celebrates. You'll laugh at everything he laughs at. You'll weep over everything that gives him grief. The point of becoming a Christian is that God would begin in your life putting his spirit inside of you so that everything about you would match him. Everything about you would be just like him. Everything about you would be as beautiful and as morally perfect and as holy and as good and wise and precious as he is. If you're a believer here today, you're on that process of becoming like God. May this passage of scripture, as we study it together, take you in one great leap toward him. I remember when I was 19 years old, I was a student at UMD. I was still living at home, the actual house that I happen to be living in now. Oh my goodness, that's quite a thought. And I was walking my Siberian Husky and I was feeling like an utter failure as a Christian. I remember the intersection of the road I was at. 
I've been a Christian since I was six, but I had constantly thoughts in my mind that I didn't want there. I felt impure and unholy to have these thoughts in my mind. Oh, oh, yes, it was all kinds of temptations outside of me, but it was also me tempting me. Then as I was at that corner with that leash and that dog, by God's amazing grace, this verse came to my mind. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you might prove what is the will of God, good and acceptable and perfect. That was the first time by the way, don't, don't ever begrudge all that's happening in the other rooms where the word of God like that is being poured into kids. Don't ever begrudge that. Everybody who's pouring the word of God, every parent, every Sunday school teacher who's pouring the word of God into kids is doing a mighty, mighty work. Maybe greater things are happening in those rooms than could ever happen here. I realized by God bringing this verse to my mind that my body was to be offered as a living sacrifice to God. Everything I am is to be offered as a living sacrifice to God. I hadn't done that in all the years I was walking with Christ. About, oh, by that time, 13, 14 years. But what struck me was I didn't have to think the thoughts I didn't want to think anymore. (laughs) I could have my mind renewed. I I wanted spiritual brainwashing. I don't have to think those thoughts anymore. That was a transformative day in my life, never to be forgotten. Here in Revelation chapter 15, we are given a picture of all of us in the future. This is future us, future future we. As we're gathered worshiping in the presence of God, all the amazing and just and true good things God has done on the earth, we're celebrating. In fact, we're singing about them. We're worshiping God for all the just and true and severe and amazing and good things he's done on the earth. This is us in heaven worshiping Christ with all that we are. This heavenly vision in Revelation 15 is the future of us as the gathered saints around the Lamb. We are all gathered there. Not one saint is missing because you can see the description of the saints that are gathered. It's all those who have not compromised. All those who have not given in to worship the beast or the number of its name. Rather, because their names are written in the Lamb's book of life, Revelation 13.8, they are worshiping the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the name under which all persons must worship those who love him willingly, those who are under his eternal punishment begrudgingly. It's those who have conquered the beast and its image and never compromised with it. That's who's gathered here. It's all those who have said there's money, there's economic power, there's prestige, there's popularity, there's freedom and opportunity, there is all kinds of praise and and approval if I worship the beast, but As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. As for me and the house of the people of God at the landing, we serve the Lord. Somebody ought to say really loud amen for that. Amen. Amen. More amens, please. 
Look at verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven. John is seeing the sixth of the seven signs that he's seeing between the, the preparation and warning, seven seals and seven trumpets. Remember how we saw those months ago? It's the preparation for wrath falling. Then there's these seven signs explaining why God is going to bring his wrath. This is the sixth of the seven. And then we're just on the verge of seven bowls filled with seven plagues, exactly meant to make us remember our Sunday school teaching of the ten plagues from Exodus that God leveled against Egypt. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. We saw the seven seals, and the outcome of that was to know that the church is protected and sealed by God, by the Holy Spirit, even through those seven seals. And then we saw the seven trumpets, and we're clearly remembering that even through the seven trumpets of God's wrath, the church is to blow the trumpet of the gospel faithfully, bearing witness even to the very end. Now we see a warning, a preparation. It's just about time for the seven bowls of seven plagues to be poured out on the earth. This is the final completion of God's wrath against the earth and those who rebel against him. It doesn't mean in Revelation there isn't more wrath to come. There is. Revelation in its closing chapters shows much more wrath from God. And it doesn't mean there isn't an eternity, the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. Revelation 14 made that plain. This means for the earth and this expression of God's climactic wrath, he's going to pour out all seven plagues. Complete wrath. Nothing's missing. Not six. As is appointed the number of losers and God dishonorers. But seven, the perfect number, the number of completion. But even in that, a number of mercy. All the while, we are given these encouraging pictures of the Lamb reigning in heaven with the church triumphant, the church militant, the church victorious, gathered around the throne, worshiping as if John by the Spirit is saying to the seven churches in Asia Minor and to all the churches since then, including us, You are both enduring persecution and hardship for being faithful and not compromising with the beast, but you're also up here with me at the same time. You're down there and you're struggling through the waves crashing on you of opposition from demonic forces or your own mind or or genetics or the culture and politics and social pressures or even individuals who've stood against you to, in enmity with you, yet at the same time, you're present with me. You're here. You're complete. You're glorified. You think what I think, love what I love, worship what I worship, my glory. As several scholars have made plain, God is promising to his church here in Revelation, as well as all through the Gospels and the New Testament epistles, as well as all through the Psalms and the wisdom writings and the entirety of the prophets and the Torah, God is always saving through judgment. Jim Hamilton, professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, has an outstanding book by that title, Salvation Through Judgment. I can't recommend it more highly. Here it is again. We'll see it explicitly 
when we return to Revelation several weeks from now after Holy Week. Salvation through judgment is happening. That's what's unfolding. And the witness of the Spirit is, worship God for this. Worship God for this. Give your whole life to Him. Think thoughts after Him and give your life, emotions, speech, values, your entire body and will to Him. Worship Christ with all that you are. One great scandal stands in the way of many of you worshiping Christ for all that He is. How can a good God bring to destruction and punishment the earth and those in it whom He has made for His glory and loves? How can God bring wrath in these seven plagues down upon those whom He says, I loved It's a major obstacle that keeps many from worshiping Christ with all that they are and all he deserves. My answer is this. How can I worship a God who punishes with wrath so much of those he made and loves? We are made to see a God who has been so kind, so merciful, so patient with all the nations of the earth whom he created, he gave to them his goodness, and they chose to take from him all of his blessings and throw them back in his face, using those very blessings to commit spiritual adultery against him. There's rebellion on the earth. There's rebellion in the form of the curse from Adam and Eve and all the way through. Death is on the earth, and all persons who live on this earth are tainted by the depravity of sin, the sin nature, and go on to commit sin as their wills are enacted. God is therefore just and good and kind and holy and right, even loving, to bring about suitable, justified destruction upon those who have wronged such a holy one as He. He's an infinite God of infinite worth and value. Any sin against Him, even one, Any breaking of his law is an infinitely heinous crime because of his infinite worth. Therefore, an infinitely heinous crime is deserving of an infinitely long punishment. Therein is the justice of God. Like Moses singing to God about his deliverance from Israel in the future, all of heaven sings to the Lamb of his deliverance of the true Israel, the elect of God, his worldwide multi-ethnic church. Look at verse 2. It, it's all who have conquered by the name, all the worshipers and lovers of God from all times and all places and all nations. All have not compromised with Satan. And they stand before a sea of glass. Did you notice that? A glorious image given to us by the scriptures. And I saw what appeared, verse 2, to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside, or some translations have, standing upon the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Twice it's mentioned, the sea of glass. It's the place where worship happens in heaven. The floor is absolutely crystalline and beautiful. A sea of glass. Yet the image is added to with this 
odd phrase no one fully understands, mingled with fire. It's almost like the sea of glass has, has a, a rising temperature, a, a fire beneath it rising. It's almost as if this fire that God says he will one day bring upon the earth to purge it is, is rising in its tense intensity and temperature. This gathering of worship of all the saints around the throne are worshiping the Lamb of God. They worship all with instruments. Did you notice it? They've all got guitars. Literally, the Greek is guitars given by God. There's no worship teams or orchestras in heaven. Everybody has an instrument. I'm looking forward to Palm Sunday, next Sunday. I hope every parent brings their child early enough, 9.30 in the morning, to get an instrument or bring an instrument of your choice because the children are going to begin our worship next Lord's Day, Palm Sunday, by entering in every kid with an instrument. And to me, that sounds great. (laughs) Bring your earplugs if you need them. Can't wait to see this picture of heaven where every child has an instrument. The Lamb has accomplished His deliverance of His bride. His death upon the cross, His rising from the dead, has achieved His salvation of His beautiful bride. And His Spirit has made her more and more beautiful by the washing of water with the Word. And now she's gathered in His presence. And she is worshiping Him. And He, in the future, has already done His trampling of the grapes. He's already taken His sickle and and released the wheat from their earthbound roots and gathered them to Himself. He's already done all his severe work. And now comes the song of severe worship of the Lamb where everyone in heaven is dedicating themselves wholly to worship God with all they are, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Look carefully with me at the song. You know this song. There have been those who've set it to music. I can't wait to hear more versions of this song set to music. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will worship, will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Do you notice what's happening here? Do you notice how beautiful this is? There are seven stanzas or lines in the original language making it so plain. This is the complete and perfect worship song. The middle one, one, two, three, then four, five, six, seven. The middle one is the highest. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? We didn't bow before any other name of the beast. We glorify your name. We worship you with joyful fear in our hearts, O Lord, singing to the Lamb, song of the Lamb. Christ, you are our Lord, and we glorify you. We cherish and prize and delight in your name. And, and then, as a mountain, there are similar ideas on either side of this. Do you notice? If you go down the mountain on either side, you get to the idea of nations. Look at the end of verse 3. O king of the nations, and middle of verse 4, all nations will come and worship you. So why worship the Lamb who is God? Because he is king of the nations. Both sides of the mountain point high to the peak that might be shrouded by the clouds of our unknowing 
And then at the very foot of the mountain is also two similar ideas. Back at the beginning, just and true are your ways. That word just means righteous. Look at the very end. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Why do I show you how beautifully formed this passage of Scripture is that lies before you? Why do I make that point? Why do I labor to to help you go deep into seeing what you're seeing? It's just this. This passage of Scripture is given to us in advance long before we have been fully glorified and our hearts fully sanctified and ready to sing it in all its fullness, especially as we sing it with the smoke of the torment of the unbeliever going up forever and ever in the background. These very truths, poetically and artistically embedded in this song, are the very reasons why we will then worship Christ with all that we are. He's God. His name is above all names. He's king of the nations. And he has justified us fully. And if that's the reason we'll worship Christ then, he's God, he's king of the nations, you've justified us with your righteousness. Then that's why we sing to him now. All who will sing to him then will sing this to him now. Don't do anything now that you will be ashamed of when Christ comes and finds you doing it. Do now what he will invite you to do and your very heart and joy will want to do when you're there then. This mountain-shaped song is meant to be the very outline at which John, the writer of Revelation, gives to his early churches and to us the rationale for how we can believe with all our hearts that when the wrath of God comes, it is not something that we have to turn away from and be ashamed of, but rather it is something that causes us to worship him. Everything in this psalm or song is meant to help us worship God in the pouring out of his wrath and in the offering of his mercy. The first thing we saw right in the middle, the apex of the mountain, is that the song of the Lamb heralds him to be God. Each of the phrases you might expect is a quote from the Old Testament, and every one of them was referring to God. Now John, in the Spirit, has assembled all seven phrases, and he applies them to the Lamb. Remember, this is the song of the Lamb. We're singing to the Lamb. Fear God and give him glory, said the voice back in chapter 14, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Jesus is God. He made all that exists. He has full right and reign to do with what he wishes all that exists. All persons are made for his glory. All persons are made for his disposal. We're told in the coming uh, second half of chapter 15 and in chapter 16 that these plagues are coming down as an echo of the ten plagues that came down upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt while the people of Israel remained faithful in the midst of it. And Romans 9 tells us plainly that God raised up Pharaoh for this very purpose, that he might show his power and his glory through him. So also we will give God glory for how he will say, it is mine to dispense with my creation, even human beings within my creation, the way that I find most glorifies me. 
And if you find that offensive, you come face to face with your rebellion against God. If you find it delightful, you're worshiping him right now. The apex of the high mountain peak of the glory of the song we'll sing is, who will not fear you, O Lord? It's asked as a question like, there isn't a fool alive who sees this and won't worship you. Of course we'll all worship you and glorify your name, not the name of the beast, your name, O Christ, for you alone are holy. It is high and shrouded in clouds of mystery and beyond our seeing, but the lines of the mountain point forward up into the clouds and the apex is undeniable. Jesus Christ is God. Let every false religion throughout the United States, let every false religion across the face of the earth, let every false religion that's been invented, let every false religion that's about to be invented fall on its face and worship Christ alone as God. Let your heart say, I worship you, O Christ, for you are God. The second observation I made out of this poetic mountain-like song is that on either side of the worship of Christ as God, he is heralded as king of the nations. Did you see that in verse 3 and verse 4? He is king of the nations and all the nations will worship him forever. That means he has full right and ownership to dispose of rebellious nations by his justice as his glory deems best. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will graciously serve his glory. We worship the Lamb who rules over the nations. He is king of the nations. And so back in Revelation 5, we sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll to Christ, to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. For you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign upon the earth. Ephesians 3 makes it plain that God has come in Jesus Christ and he has died upon the cross in order that Jew and Gentile, warring and hateful nations of each other, might be no longer two but made one because the wall of hostility has been broken down between them. Christ says, I am worthy of worship for eternity because I will do with the nations exactly what my glory and justice deems best. And you will one day see that with eyes of faith. You'll even see it today. Even today, you'll say, I think I see it. And you'll worship him for it. Bringing ethnicities together in this life until then is Gospel work and gospel work alone. Our missionary enterprise is to go to the nations and proclaim to tribe, tongue, people, and nation that forgiveness and being made right with God who made you and owns you happens only through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. So many voices come along and say, oh, we need new laws. We need new social structure resets. We need new moral and value systems. We need different worldviews. We need different teaching and educational means. We need to have an entire restructuring of the way we think about humanity with technology and science twisted out of their God-given intent and made to rebel against God. Yet the scripture says, 
For as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's one solution for ethnic strife in the world, in Duluth, Minnesota, in any relationship that you're in. There's one solution and one solution alone. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the cross of Christ. And I'm even sad when I find Christians setting the Bible and the gospel aside for other fallible and failed means at bringing unity among the nations. In 1983, Christian missionaries brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to the savage tribes of the Mook people in Papua New Guinea. After hearing the gospel and nearly the entire tribe joyfully receiving Christ, the Mook traveled to other parts of the island to win their enemies and warring tribes with the gospel. And after many, many attempts and many true acts of love, the Mook tribe was able to win to Christ their enemy tribes. And dozens of other examples exist like that in the world in church history. The gospel alone has the power to bring the nations to the Lord and to bring the nations together. That's the witness of the church until Christ returns. He has the right then to draw from all the tribes, tongues, and peoples and nations a bride, an elect, a gathered holy nation out of all those tribes and tongues and peoples and do with what he deems best for those who have hardened their heart and turned from him. We'll sing of this in eternity. We will sing of it by faith now. The very basis of the mountain, the very foundation for how we are going to worship Christ with all that we are is his justice. It's his justice. Verse 3 and verse 4 both use the same word, just and righteous. He is just. All that he does is just. We're singing about it because there's this, this massive question against God. Can he be just and bring wrath upon the earth? Yes. Yes, he can. In fact, if God were indifferent to the violating and polluting and profaning of his glory, would he be just at all? Suppose a judge heard a a court case in which a pregnant woman was killed, her and her unborn child. Suppose the judge said it was a drunk driver who killed this woman and her unborn child? What do you plead, drunk driver? And what if the drunk driver said, well, I don't have any plea in killing the mother, but in killing the unborn child, I plead health care. It was health care. If the judge received that, he'd be a wicked judge. If God looked at all the sins of the world, the trampling of his church, the defiling of what he calls beautiful, made in his image, the gospel, the the name of his son, violated and disregarded and profaned in untold ways, if he was indifferent to such things, he'd be an unjust judge, an unjust God. But we'll sing forever with all that we are that he is just and he justifies the ungodly. Let me read for you the most important paragraph in all of Scripture. Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested. You are righteous, God. Even when you bring your wrath, you are righteous. We've seen it. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In sending his son to the cross as the sacrificial lamb, God justifies the ungodly, you and me, and he shows himself to be just at the same time. He's not sweeping under the rug of the universe all the sin that was committed for thousands of years. He's paying for it with the costly and infinitely precious blood of his son. Here's how John Calvin states it plainly. A man will be justified by faith when excluded from righteousness of works. He, by faith, lays hold of the righteousness of Christ and clothed in it appears in the sight of God, not as a sinner, but as righteous. He who knew no sin, Christ, became sin in order that in him we, sinners though we are, might become the righteousness of God. Is that true for you? Is that true for you? Can you say, I'm the righteousness of God? The greatest thing in all the world is to be saved, said a dying physician to his pastor. We say that often around here because we cherish our salvation. It prepares us not only for heaven one day, but it prepares us for today to live for the worship of Christ in all that we do. Not being conformed to the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Well, that's the overflow. That's the shape of the mountain. Christ is God, so worship him with the song of the Lamb. He has the right to rule and reign over all his creation, for he made it. Celebrate him for that. Worship him for that. And and even the nations, he's king of them, and they'll all come worship him. Worship him for his global ministry, extending the gospel to the nations. And drawing out of every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation, those for himself. And dealing with righteousness and justice, those who reject him. Why? Because we worship him as the God who is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Let me end this way. I spent the most time on this passage way back when I first began to study it six months ago, and then this week as I was studying it intently, asking, why did John, in his vision, way back in verse 2, mention the sea of glass twice? What does he want to give to the reader in his first century receiving of this vision and then writing it down and and delivering it to the seven churches, what are they supposed to see by this massive sea of glass mingled with fire stretching out before the throne and all the entirety of the bride of Christ beside it and upon it with their harps, their guitars and instruments worshiping Christ in the presence of God? I looked up glass and found out in Revelation it shows up four times And it shows up, that same word for glass, one other place in Mark chapter 4, verse 36. Do you remember what happens there? Jesus is sleeping in a boat. And the Sea of Galilee is roiling and chaotic. 
and threatening death and tumultuous. And his disciples wake him up and say to him, Teacher, do not care that, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you ever think God seems to be so far from you that he doesn't care that you're going through the deepest stress and loss and pain you, you could ever imagine? Does it ever feel like your whole life is crashing over on you and every time you turn around, more bad news is coming like another tidal wave crashing in on you? Don't you care, teacher, that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, say it with me, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great glass. Interpreters, translators say calm, but it's glass. And there was a great glass. Out of the roiling sea, the dragon has his foot in it. The beast comes out of it. Everything in your life, in your past, everything you're battling with right now, everything that might attack you this week, everything that's trying to distract you from the Word of God right now, everything in your life that's trying to steal, kill, and destroy is trying to throw waves and waves and waves of bitter salt water on your face and quench and deny the peace of God that Jesus bought for you. And He sovereignly rules over and says to roiling oceans, Peace, be still, and there is a great glass. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The great glass, like a sea of glass in heaven, is the entirety of nature obeying our Christ. So that you could live in perfect peace. You, O oh God, keep every person in this room in perfect peace as their mind is stayed on you. One of my mentors, through his writings, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, the moment you stop looking at your difficulties and you turn to look to God, that's the moment you will understand true and spiritual peace. You're not just going to have that in heaven. You're meant to have it right now. This is the sweet takeaway from Revelation 15. It's a sea of glass mentioned twice, and there you are with your harp or guitar, whatever you prefer. And there's glass everywhere, and there's fire beneath it. And you've never seen fire in, under glass before, but there you are. And you're singing, great and amazing are your deeds, just and true are your ways. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? You alone are king of the nations. You are just, and you have made me righteous. If you don't know what that's like, if you don't know what that experience is like, you need to come and you need to let somebody up here at the front, right or left, pray for you or the person who's with you, someone in your family, someone nearby you, just pray over you. If you see someone sitting with their head bowed and they don't even want to get out of their chair, but the Spirit is prompting you, don't, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Go right to them, put the hand on the shoulder and begin to pray for them. I wonder if you would stand and close with me. Uh, this message, and not the whole service, just this message by singing this with me. Let's stand. 
When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, it is well with my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. Lord, I pray that every one of us who've sung that can sing it in truth, describing a reality in our souls that makes us want to offer our entire lives in the worship of you. We confess how we need you as we go out of this room and go to our meal and go to our conversations and go to the busyness of the afternoon and the week ahead. We confess that we need you. Apart from you, things spiral out of order and control and out of orbit around you. Hold us. Give us your peace. Make it well with our souls. Cause us now to worship you boldly, fiercely, resolutely, so that we will be all the more joyful, revealing how your work in us has made us ready to worship you then with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close our service with another song.